Welcome everyone to the in-house roundhouse, quick tips for busy general counsel. My name is Mark Henriquez. I'm your host, a litigator in our Charlotte office. Today we're going to be talking about insurance and the insurance sector. We have two guests with us uh, who are heads of that sector group. We have John Drake from our London office and Lisa Bondurant, who's here in the United States. John, I, I know you've had a lot of experience in insurance. I appreciate you being here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Mark. I had the pleasure and the privilege of spending 10 years as an in-house general counsel working for a very, very large Canadian-owned corporation. So I spent some time working in the UK and spent a little bit of time in the US as well. I worked at Lloyd's of London for five years during some of the most interesting times of Lloyd's life in the mid-1990s. So if any of your listeners have had experience of Lloyd's, then I saw that one too. All right, terrific. No, thanks. And I think bringing that in-house experience will be great. And I know our listeners want to get some of those insights. Lisa, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I, um, I've been a litigator for over 30 years. And most of those 30 years, I've been litigating for insurance companies. I've done uh, coverage work, regulatory work. And much of that has been in the trial courts and the 4th, 11th, 5th, and 6th circuits, and um, specialized in the last probably 10 or 15 years in the financial services sector, of, and, and in particular, the life insurance business. Great. No, thank you. And I appreciate you both being here. One of the reasons we got together is that as a result of the combination between Womble Carlisle and Von Dickinson, we're now organized into sectors. And I understand we have an insurance sector uh, that you're both part of. And I wanted to share with our listeners a little bit about that sector. John, I know Von Dickinson's been organized around sectors for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about that sector structure? Because it's new to some of those of us in the States. Some time ago, Mark, we realized that we had specialist lawyers operating across a range of disciplines for the insurance sector. So that might have been insurance companies, insurance brokers, and also financial institutions, for example, that maybe sell insurance for their clients. So over time, we grouped all those specialist lawyers together. So for the last six or seven years, we've been operating almost exclusively through a sector approach. So if we do a, a transaction for you, for example, then we will bring together our team that is experienced across the whole line of insurance type experience. So you will get transactional, you'll get regulatory, you will get tax experts uh, in the UK who have all done a number of these and who live the, live the sector. Okay, that's great. And Lisa, I know we haven't always thought of ourselves as a sector, although we've done a lot of work for insurance companies over the year. How's it working trying to kind of move to a sector <laughs> format for our, our more traditional uh, practice group orientation right. for the United States market? Well, it's been exciting because what we're able to do for the insurance industry now is we have pulled um, employment lawyers, for example, like John mentioned, regulatory lawyers, um, M&A specialist all into the sector so that we're now able to serve our insurance company clients in more ways than just litigation, which is what we had been doing considering our insurance practice. And it's taken um, the better part of six or eight months to make sure we were doing that right and pulling in the right people with the right practice groups to um, who are primed and ready and experience to be able to serve the insurance industry. So it's very exciting for Womble to be able to model after the UK firm and, and market that way. 
I think that's exciting. And I know as being part of some of these discussions, it's interesting to see how much depth of experience may actually be there, but hasn't been organized, more formal kind of structure. So I think that's great to be able to identify those resources. Um, John, we, we often, and Lisa mentioned litigation, and I'm a litigator, so when I think of insurance, I think of representing either the insurance companies themselves or sometimes their insureds in, in significant litigation. You mentioned mergers. Are there other non-litigation things that the insurance section has been providing to insurance They clients? call it non-contentious work over there. <laughs> that's, the, that's the language? <laughs> exactly. That sounds very peaceable. <laughs> 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 Sorry to jump in, but I've, been, I've learned that term. Uh-huh. Um, th- there's a range of things that we do, Mark, because essentially, as someone said to me the other day, insurance companies are large corporations who at their core provide you with coverage and peace of mind. So like any other large corporation, they have a number of needs. But in particular, we will concentrate on servicing, say, their policy drafting requirements, their reinsurance requirements, regulation. So all of these are specialist expertise areas where without blowing my own trumpet, to use a, an English term. I don't know if that's a US one either. Um, we call it a horn. Blow, to, horn. Toot your horn. I toot, guess we, without we've taken my it down. Horn, thank Instead you. of blowing a trumpet, which sounds a little regal, you know, we give it the backcountry right. toot a horn uh, language. But no, tell us, John. So having been in-house, then you acquire these broad range of skills. So we've organized ourselves uh, so that we can offer that policy drafting, policy review, regulatory review, startup as well as your traditional M&A and uh, say IP and tech requirements. That's great. And I imagine the regulatory issues are, are difficult. I know here in the States, a lot of the regulations at the state level, right? So that's a challenge for these large national insurers to figure out what they've got to do in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. Is that something we're helping clients with, Yeah, Lisa? Yeah, we are. And it is a challenge, though, because you really need um, someone who can focus pretty exclusively on regulatory issues in various states. Um, but we have been able to organize around that directive from our clients who need as much regulatory assistance as they do really in other areas because that's so important on the front side of selling a product or administering the product to know how the departments of insurance in that particular state are going to react. And so, yes, we are um, have been able to marshal around that request of our clients and, and focus on regulatory issues now that we're m- more focused at a sector. I think that's great. You know, one of the things I think is a real strength of the sector focus is really being able to learn about our client sector, help them see what's coming down the road. I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts about some of the challenges that may be facing the insurance industry today or what you're hearing from clients. Why don't I start with you, John? Any particular things you're hearing about in terms of current issues uh, facing those folks? One of the key ones for a number of my clients, and these are US clients as well as European clients, is clearly the Brexit. That is a big challenge for a lot of firms at the moment. How do you organize and structure yourself appropriately so you continue to provide the services you need to your insured customers? So we've seen a spate of 
corporate reorganizations with companies, insurers in particular, but brokers as well, having to establish new operations in different jurisdictions. And this is all in an area of uh, political uncertainty because we have no idea at the moment what the UK's deal with the European Union is going to be like. So we are spending time and effort working with a number of our clients to get themselves the optimum structure so they continue to do their their day-to-day business past the date of the UK's departure from the European Union. Do most of the big insurance companies have multi-country coverage? In other words, obviously, I imagine Lloyd's is worldwide. Is that true of other insurers where they might have insured in the UK and also in Italy and also in the United States and also in South America? I mean, what what's the pattern in terms of the, those insurers? It, it, it's really variable, Mark. What we've seen, for example, Lloyd's of London have had to set up a whole new organization in Belgium. So oh, there wow. is now going to be a Lloyd's insurance company in Brussels. So mm. even big multinational... <laughs> Lloyd's of London and Brussels. That, I think that's that, entirely you know, someone right. not in the industry, there's some irony, <laughs> irony in that. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, so that's a, as a function of Brexit, though. They've got to actually relocate and have a Belgian yeah. office so they can continue to offer that coverage as Lloyd's of London and not be in London. Yeah, they, they've wow. chosen Brussels as their centre. Now a number of other insurers have chosen other locations within the EU. Now, there are some groups who already have existing European operations, so for them it's just a case of deciding where they're going. But some notable large insurers actually don't and have used what we call the passporting rights, so you can be in one EU country and then write business throughout the EU. Going forward, that's not going to be possible, and so if you don't have that, that European base, you've got to have one now. Wow. That's a, I can see that as being a pretty pressing issue. Lisa, what do you see in terms of things clients are, are grappling with? Well, there's always, um, the insurance industry is in the business of assessing risk. So insurance companies are always trying to stay ahead of the risk that, they, that may come down the pike. And one, I think probably um, risk of which they were not quite ready or aware is the opioid crisis. That Mm. has um, been bubbling around, but it's just been in the last three or four years a risk that all the insurance companies are worried about, all of the ones with which I'm familiar, because the claims against the number of entities are so vast. There's, There's claims against pharmaceutical companies, distributors, medical providers, and they're being sued by um, cities, states, municipalities, and that's just an example. There, there are wow. going yeah. to be issues of the day that are going to be costly that maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't, the industry did not know of that risk. And so the insurance coverage is um, perhaps not written to address that risk. And so right now, that's one that I think many companies are concerned about for themselves and their insureds. Are there any number of uh, artificial intelligence, for example? It's not a risk, but it's a, a way of doing business with technology that these insurance companies are all trying to grapple with. How are we going to manage the businesses? How do we manage communications and things that um, just as technology is changing, as the world is changing, um, insurance companies try to keep up with it. Um, it's hard to stay ahead of the curve. And so opioids and artificial intelligence are two issues that I hear being talked about a lot. Wow. What about, uh, we all hear about GDPR, but I imagine insurance companies may face some particular problems in the, in the privacy area. What are folks uh, concerned about with regard to the privacy of data? Lisa? 
Uh, yeah, well, it's a huge concern. It's a huge concern from a regulatory standpoint now, from a litigation standpoint, from a take care of your customer standpoint. Most probably most importantly, insurance companies are privy to a uh, significant amount of health information, personal information, financial information relative to their insureds. And they are tasked now by law of making sure that information is not disclosed. It's a huge undertaking to make sure that everything's buttoned up, even dealing with outside counsel is a several step process so that we are and our law firms are, are Womble especially, Womble Bondick is especially well um, ramped up to meet that challenge but I can't underestimate um, how challenging that issue is for the insurance industry. Yeah, I imagine, I mean, you think about someone that got a physical 20, 30 years ago, and yet that's sitting in a file somewhere, maybe electronically copied, maybe on microfilm, you know, where is it, how is it secured? That's gotta be a challenge for these large companies with hundreds of thousands of policyholders or millions of policyholders. It's got to be tough. Similar concerns on the other side of the pond, John? You mentioned GDPR. So we have a whole set of entirely new rules about how data has to be handled, the consents that you need to get from the customers for doing so. And that's arriving on the 25th of May, 2018. So everyone in Europe has been busy getting themselves ready for that. And that's a real challenge for insurance underwriters because what they do is handle sensitive personal data about people's medical conditions, their health, etc. And so getting yourself prepared for that, getting the right consents, making sure you have the right policies in place to handle that, and then being ready to handle um, potentially very, very large new fines. There are big new regulatory powers that are arriving as well. So it's a big, big change for anyone doing business in Europe, but also any companies that are dealing, say, with cross-border transfers of data. So if you're sending data out of the European Union as well, then GDPR really impacts you as well. So it's a huge undertaking and data and privacy lawyers are not sleeping at all in Europe (laughs) at the moment. Yes, I think that's true even on this side. I I know we've got several, but I was talking to Ted Claypool, one of my partners who was in Charlotte now in Atlanta. And yeah, he's been working nonstop trying to keep folks um, up to speed because it is interesting until you get a government requirement there's a tendency not to want to worry as much about those requirements. And it's a it's a pretty uh, difficult uh, task to comply. Well, and it, sort of in that vein, um, inadvertent data breaches by large companies, the question of whether there's insurance for those data breaches is um, not exactly related to GDPR, but it is related to privacy and the requirements of not disclosing customer information. You, you know of any number of big companies in the last three or four years who've because it's going to happen, it had inadvertent breaches and um, thousands of customers' information released, and they have to deal with those claims, and um, insurance companies are often asked to respond. And so right. everywhere it's pervasive, and insurance companies have had to staff up and ramp up pretty significantly over the last decade to prepare for and address it. That's a great point. And I want to remind our listeners, if you missed it, we had an entire episode on cyber insurance Mm -hmm. and how to get coverage. Alan O'Rourke went through the process, what to look for in a policy um, and how to do it. So go back in your feed, uh, (laughs) listeners, and you can find uh, the cyber insurance because I do, we continue to get headlines about major data breaches all the time. uh, And that's an important area and certainly one that we've got lawyers with a lot of experience uh, dealing 
dealing with that specific issue. But I think the idea of you know encompassing that in the context of a sector so we can go and bring that data security and privacy expertise to the insurance companies and, and know that they're working with people experience seems to be a, a significant advantage there. Um, what about, and we touched on dispute resolution, we've been doing that for a long time. Um, are there you know, developments there? Obviously, insurance companies as a deep pocket are, are continually getting lawsuits brought against them. Are it, things that you're seeing either in the courtroom, and I, I don't know how dispute resolution, or I guess what, what would be the, uh, the more controversial or <laughs> contentious, the, the contentious uh, yeah. lawyers. And I think most of us would probably fall in the contentious category here in the U.S. I don't know how that... You know, how are those issues being addressed or being handled uh, in the UK? Is there much, is there contention or lawsuits on, on insurance coverage or is it a different world over there? I think it, it feels a slightly different world because the UK and Europe is not as advanced as the US around class actions, for example. So we don't see the same type of mass tort type claims, but there have been slowly steps taken by the European Commission in particular to introduce those types of uh, laws at a European level. And um, there is a slow movement towards that type of uh, group collective action. In particular, recent development has been the arrival, particularly in the UK, of litigation funders, Ah. mainly some of them private equity backed, who will look at the merits of the dispute. And because in the UK we have a loser pays costs system, then bringing litigation... We call it the English rule. (laughs) But yes, I'm familiar with it. (laughs) So that's been a big driver for funds to come over and to look for really good litigation opportunities for plaintiffs who might not necessarily want to put themselves at risk, but who will give up a share, obviously, of the litigation proceeds, but in exchange for being backed by the fund who will cover them for their costs if they lose. So that's been a real shift and there's been a steady increase in that type of uh, provision of uh, service. Interesting. Any thoughts about trends in litigation, Lisa, that you're seeing as someone actually in the courtroom? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I can't really put my finger on a particular trend, but there are always lawyers pushing the envelope and looking for a new theory. a few years ago, it was RICO, and that seems to have died down a little bit. There's always uh, unfair and deceptive trade practice claims that the other side will try to urge on a court, which gets you beyond the true insurance issue and into a different realm of claim and damages. Class actions, of course, anytime a case can be sued as a class, that's what we're going to see because it's more advantageous for a plaintiff's law firm or, or insureds to pursue what could be modest remedies by way of a class. And so um, that's not new, but we're seeing different angles. Um, so, you know, there's still all manner of claims and all manner of lawyers, and um, and we just have to be on our toes for the insurance industry all the time, ready to litigate whatever comes our way. Right. And, and I'll toot your horn for a minute as a general litigator. <laughs> I mean, these policies are complex, and you get these interesting issues of policy interpretation. I've been amazed at how Lisa and the other folks in our litigation the group that do insurance really understand and focus on those issues and handle cases efficiently. I imagine there's a lot of cost pressure on our insurance clients clients and the ability to get systems in place so we can handle cases that are similar efficiently in the same way. Is that, am I right? Is, is, there, is there cost pressure to try to keep fees in check? Absolutely. Insurance companies are very concerned about legal spend. And the, I know the general counsel's office 
issues directives to the law firms to keep the spend reasonable and in line with the kind of work. And and so we have at the firm um, very strict controls on how we manage this work to keep it flowing quickly and efficiently and to manage it as best we can and as least expensively as we can for the client because they're under tremendous pressure. I hear it all the time and I empathize because they want you know, they don't want to tell us that they can't pay certain rates or certain amounts, but it's tough. And so we have systems in place to address those concerns. Terrific. Anything else on the cost front, John, that you want to share or any other final thoughts? We're about out of time, but I, uh, I really appreciate the, the thoughts and input. Just on the cost front from the UK, we have always taken our lead. We've uh, always looked towards the US for innovative ways in which we can manage costs and with the UK environment changing, as I mentioned before, with litigation funders coming in, we're finding our insurance company and insurance sector clients becoming more sophisticated in the way in which they want to interact with us as a law firm. And so we've been able to get some innovative learning from our colleagues in the US about different fee arrangement methods, different charging methods as well. So, so with this one, we are definitely still looking to the US for, uh, for our help right. on that one, Mark. Well, I really think, I mean, Womblebond Dickinson is a unique value proposition. We always talk about Wall Street service at Main Street prices, but I think in the insurance area with all the price sensitivity, the ability to offer an international platform and still be offering services at a competitive rate in markets where we can uh, do it efficiently and cost-effectively seems to be a good value proposition for those insurance clients. We think so. (laughs) All right. Apparently, our clients do too. Thank you both uh, for sharing stuff about the insurance sector. It's exciting to learn about those new structures here. Um, That concludes this episode of In-House Roundhouse. I do appreciate you listening. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, We appreciate that. If you have any questions or input onto future episodes, you can contact me via email or on Twitter or LinkedIn, where we publish information about this and upcoming episodes. We are expecting to do one on immigration. We've been getting a lot of questions about that, and particularly as a tightening labor market, a way to address those needs and get technical employees in. So stay tuned for that episode. I appreciate you listening. We'll see you at the next station.